G'day, mate. Porty here. So you may have heard in the news over the past couple of weeks, we've had some U.S. airstrikes hitting uh, Syria, various Iranian proxies fighting in, in Syria. But did you know the United States has military bases in Syria? All right, that's the reason we've been bombing Iranian proxies in Syria, because the United States, against international law, and I, I'm not a big proponent of international law, but it is kind of outrageous when you think about it. Syria is a, a sovereign country that's been fighting a civil war for about 10 years, and the United States, without the permission of Syria, has military bases in Syria and, and throughout the Middle East. So the more forces we have in the Middle East, right, the more bases we have in the Middle East, right, the more of a chance we have for some kind of conflagration. So all these Iranian proxies in the Middle East, they are not duplicates of Iran, right? All indications we have are that Iran does not want war with the United States. But even though these are Iranian proxies, they're not dupes of Iran. They don't just do what Iran says. And so Iran, I would suspect, is discouraging its, its proxies in, in the Middle East from escalating with the United States because Iran, I don't think, wants a direct military confrontation with the U.S., but there are probably parts of the Iranian regime that would like a military confrontation with the United States, just like there are parts the Iranian of the Joe Biden administration that would like to go to war directly with Iran. And I've been listening a lot to the podcast, The Duran, and I think they make a lot of great points. One of them is this is the most incompetent foreign policy administration in the United States in probably 80 years. They seem competent, all right, because they don't leak against each other. And they pretty much all appear publicly to be singing from the same prayer book. But the, the pedal to the metal, unnecessary escalation and risk of you know, wider conflict with our deep support for Ukraine. So we are risking you know, a, a direct confrontation with Russia and nuclear power. Now the Biden administration wants to send $10 billion worth of arms to Taiwan. So the reason that Russia invaded Ukraine in the first place was in large part because America kept, kept sending arms to Ukraine. All right. So the more you arm a, a nation on the borders of a great power, the more that great power is likely to want to go to war. Remember how the United States went ballistic during the Cuban Missile Crisis because uh, Russia, Soviet Union had uh, placed uh, weapons in, in Cuba that were threatening the United States. The United States has a Monroe Doctrine. We don't tolerate interference by outside powers in what we regard as our regional sector of uh, control, the, the Americas, so too other great powers you know, seek the same kind of regional hegemony in their sphere of the world. So for Russia, that means much of Eastern Europe and uh, Ukraine. For China, it means the, the borders of China pushing out a couple of hundred miles, including Taiwan. So by massively aiding Taiwan, we are massively increasing the chances that we will be involved in a shooting war with China over Taiwan by massively aiding Ukraine, right? We are increasing the, the chances of military confrontation with Russia, and we strongly incentivize Russia to create trouble for us. So Russia is creating trouble for us by supporting Azerbaijan against Armenia. Uh, Russia is creating trouble for the United States by supporting Hamas against Israel.
Uh, Russia is fermenting unrest probably in the, in the Balkans. Uh, Russia is forming a deeper and deeper alliance with North Korea, with Iran, and with China. And so the more the Biden administration tries to go pedal to the metal and you know, sends arms to its various proxies in the world, right, the greater chance we have for some kind of massive escalation. And now the United States has so much firepower that it's moved into the Middle East. All right, It's sent a highly powerful nuclear-armed and nuclear-powered submarine into the Suez Canal, right? It's got about 100 missiles that it can send into Iran. We've got two U.S. aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean, right? And so the more forces we put in the Middle East, the more bases, right, the more potential you have for some kind of conflagration, for some kind of unrest, for some kind of incident that then leads to wider war. And, and I think a wider war with Iran would be an absolute disaster, right? Iran, I'm sure, has got kill squads in the United States and in other Western capitals that it will unleash if the West tries to go to war with, uh, with Iran. So I've been listening a lot to the podcast, The Duran, this morning. So I, I got up at uh, 1 a.m. No, I didn't get up at 1 a.m. I woke up at 1 a.m. and I knew that the World Cup of Cricket Final, Australia versus India, started at 12.30 a.m. So I just put it on ABC Radio on my iPhone, and I thought, oh, I'll just uh, fall asleep, fall back to sleep listening to the World Cup. It was such an exciting match. All right. India was the dominant favorite. favorite. Like, it was played in India. India looked like the best team by far. But Australia played its best cricket. All right. It, it was fielding so well. It was bowling well. And it looked now, if you just look at the final score, that Australia won easily. But it was just absolutely scintillating cricket. The Indian crowd was just loud and explosive as, as India you know, rocketed off to a magnificent start this morning. And so by, by 2 a.m., I just gave up. Right? I'm not going to be able to sleep. So I, I rolled out of bed. I turned on ESPN Plus to start watching the World Cup of Cricket. And then I just listened to most of the podcast the duran its episodes over the past month some excellent analysis uh mainly from a guy named alexander who's a former barrister who specializes in human rights in london he was disbarred for some kind of ethical infraction about 10 years ago now he's best known for his work on the duran as a commentator on international affairs he is so good at passing diplomatic speech and diplomatic uh, cables and news releases like far better than I am. He's far more attuned to international opinion than I am. He reads widely in the elite publications all around the world. So he'll quote from publications out of Spain and Ukraine and, and Russia, as well as the United Kingdom and America. So he brings a lot to the table. Here he is talking about uh, U.S. military fighting with militias in the Middle East intensifies. And what's important about this is as this fight intensifies, we are dramatically increasing the odds of some kind of massive U.S. military attack on Iran. And so perhaps the reason the Biden administration has so closely embraced Iran, uh, embraced Israel over the past six weeks is to serve as a distraction from this, this uh, coming massive bombardment of Iran. This one, uh, this airstrike claimed to have uh, targeted uh, Iranian militia who were operating, allegedly operating outside of Syria and hitting the uh, the U.S. base, the illegal U.S. base in Syria. So uh, that, that was what the Pentagon said. But um, 
uh, it seems like uh, these these exchanges, these skirmishes between the United States and these various forces, militias in uh, in Iraq and in Syria are are becoming more um, commonplace. And uh, I think that's that's a very very bad sign, given all the rhetoric that we've heard from the Biden White House about if you if you hit any of our U.S. Uh, uh, resources, uh, military bases, assets in the region. Well, then we're gonna we're gonna um, inflict a heavy price on you. And they're speaking to Iran as they say this, this these uh, these statements. So, uh, what's what are your thoughts on on the escalation that's happening outside of uh, of the war in Israel? And then we'll probably get back get to the war in Israel as well. Well, I think the first thing to say is that in in, in geopolitical terms, in global terms, it's obviously the battle in Gaza that is getting the most attention and it's understandable because we see the pictures every day there's a humanitarian disaster there this is a politically fraught subject but i would actually suggest that in fact it's these fight these battles that are raging off behind the curtain if you like between these militias and the united states right th this is the key point what dominates the news all right the, the pictures that dominate tv news the front pages of newspapers the conventional opinion the foreign policy establishment right that's not co-equal with what's important in the world all right so all sorts of things go on that that uh, may may grab your visual attention but they're not co-equal with what's really important so what's really important is if the united states you know starts bombing iran right that would be i believe a massive disaster for the united states which are clearly intensifying that actually is the more dangerous and the more worrying uh, um, the more worrying event. And you're absolutely correct. The, the, all the indications are that the fighting between these militias and the United States is intensified. The US, as you rightly said, has just launched another big airstrike on um, a ship, what, what it claims is a militia base. There's now lots of pictures, if you really you know, want to search for them, of rocket attacks and missile attacks on American bases in Syria, especially. And you're absolutely correct to say that these bases should not be in and uh, looking at the chat, uh, two votes that I barely need a haircut. <laughs> yeah, I was noticing yesterday that my hair is like well over my collar in the back. Uh, Ricardo says what's really important is family and friends. Yeah, that's really important for the individual. But individuals are part of a collective. And the best way to understand individuals is to understand their position, their part in the tribe, the nation, in the nation state, the, the collective. And so generally speaking, what goes on, in the White House is not that important. Generally speaking, it's not going to make much difference to your life, whether it's George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, or Joe Biden in the White House. But this escalation of U.S. foreign involvement under the Biden administration with our massive support for Ukraine, with our standing side by side with Israel, and increasingly provocative measures towards China this could upend your life if we indeed go to war with another one of these great powers. Syria, they've not been authorized by the Security Council in uh, New York, in the UN Security Council. They've not been agreed to by the Syrian government. No political agency that has uh, sovereignty over Syria has authorized the presence of these bases. So these bases are illegally present in Syria, and they're now becoming... So Bibi Netanyahu and, and Joe Biden literally embraced when, when Biden visited Israel about a month ago. They have a lot in common because as soon as war is over, right, both, both Biden and Bibi are out of political office. So one way to understand the inflammatory pedal to the metal, you know, war enthusiastic approach of the Biden administration and of the Netanyahu administration is that both Bibi and Biden recognize that as soon as the time of war is over, 
both of them are sunk politically. So Joe Biden has long had really poor domestic ratings, which may very well, I, I believe that that's played a significant role in you know, Biden's enthusiastic promotion of war overseas to try to seem like a, a strong leader. And for Bibi Netanyahu, who's widely unpopular in Israel, as soon as this Israeli invasion of uh, Gaza ends, right, he, he's going to be out of office. So the incentives facing both Joe Biden and Bibi Netanyahu are not the same incentives facing Americans and Israelis. But uh, these two guys are putting their own personal political ambitions, you know, way above the interests of their respective countries. Um, above of contention, they're becoming sites of actual battles. And the United States is retaliating by launching airstrikes in Syria, which again are illegal. I mean, they're part of the United States is present illegally in Syria. And these... Look, so this guy's a, a former barrister, so he cares a great deal about international law and international opinion and what is legal and illegal under international law. And I don't really care that much about it because international law is only important to the extent that uh, some parties that are very powerful are going to try to enforce it. But it is insane to think that we have military bases in Syria, that we have all these military bases in the Middle East that are probably not aligned with our best interests that just dramatically increase the, the chances that we'll get stuck in some kind of conflagration that could very well you know, devastate your life and the life of people you, you love for no good reason, right? This is not aligned with America's best interests, but for people who get into foreign policy as a career choice, right? Do you think that they're going to be satisfied with playing an unimportant role, right? All of us want to you know, play an important role in life. And how you get your sense of importance is a pretty good measure of who you are. But if you're in the foreign policy game and you get your sense of importance from intervening overseas, right, that's normal and natural. And it may even be healthy for you, but it's really, really bad for the, for the country that you represent. So ideally, you want to create situations where incentives for your workers and incentives for your foreign policy establishment like align with what are in your, your nation's best interests, but that's clearly not true here. Such a thing as evolutionary mismatch, all right? We, we evolved to try to you know, have sex with everything we could. If, you, if you're a man, to you know, eat everything delicious that comes before us, to be greatly afraid of, of public speaking, because we, we evolved to live almost our entire lives within a fairly small tribe. And so the chances of saying something stupid if you speak publicly that would you know, forever damage your prospects of reproducing and living a healthy life are enormous. So we have all this evolutionary mismatch. Then we have a dramatic mismatch in incentives between people in the foreign policy establishment and what's really in America's best interest. Think about how exciting it is to play the big game overseas and try to intervene in affairs in you know, Israel and Ukraine and all over God's little green acre. But the more you do that, Right, the more you increase the chances of some kind of massive conflagration that uh, whips the United States away from an alignment with its best interests into a mess. Now, I'm not opposed to foreign policy alliances. I think overall, America's foreign policy alliances, generally speaking, are in its best interests. It gives us a big advantage over China. I'm not in favor of NATO. Uh, if I were president of the United States, I would get the United States out of NATO. Many good things about foreign policy alliances, but... 
the proliferation of American military bases in the Middle East in particular is deadly dangerous. Syrian, these airstrikes it's launching in Syria are therefore, by extension, illegal as well. The fighting, as you correctly say, is intensifying. And I saw a really troubling comment in one of Larry Johnson's pieces um, on Sonar 21, in which he said that somebody that he knows, who is, well, you know, informed about these things, and here, by the way, I should say that I take this report very seriously. I am sure it is true. Anyway, he says that hospitals, military hospitals, U.S. military hospitals, are quietly filling with U.S. soldiers who have been wounded in this fighting, and that the fighting clearly is taking place at a much greater level of intensity than the administration wants people to know. So already we can see fighting is taking place between the United States and Iran's allies. So it's a lot like uh, U.S. involvement in, in Vietnam, all right? The, the fighting was much more intense. We weren't having nearly as much success as our leaders were putting forward and the, you know, the, the dire and, and fruitless result of our efforts in, in the Vietnamese conflict was consistently you know, minimized to the uh, American people. All right, so John Mearsheimer makes the point that uh, political leaders rarely lie to foreign foreigners, to other foreign political leaders, because there's there's no reason that one foreigner is going to you know, believe the, the word of a leader of another country, but politicians consistently lie to their own people. Right? They consistently try to get away with stuff. And uh, I think the Duran is onto something important here. What's, what's uh, most chilling about U.S. involvement in the Middle East is our fighting with these Iranian-backed militias and the amount of significant firepower that we have in that region that could very well escalate into direct war with Iran and Hezbollah. The U.S. calls them proxies in uh, the Middle East. The United States, as you absolutely correctly say, is issuing further warnings against Iran. The latest statement that was issued by the U.S. government uh, straightforwardly uh, said, you know, that Iran is um, responsible for these attacks. It warned Iran to uh, take get tighter control over its proxies, and it made it clear again that the United States stands ready to retaliate. And we've discussed in the past how there are people in the United States who are aching for an outright attack on Iran, and we see more and more military assets being deployed to the Middle East, which look to be the kind of assets you would want if you were considering a military strike on Iran. So, Yeah, we have an enormously well-funded lobby in the United States to, to go to war with Iran, and I'm sure you have significant parts of the Iranian regime that would love to go to war with America, significant parts of the Biden administration that would love to go to war with Iran. And I can understand why the Biden administration would think that a war with Iran might be good for Joe Biden politically. Initially, under George W. Bush, right, invading Afghanistan helped the Republicans in the 2002 elections. By 2004, it seemed to become obvious that our invasion of Iraq was a mistake. And then by 2006, there was a massive blowback against uh, Republicans for these unnecessary wars in the Middle East. We've now had confirmed reports about the deployment of an Ohio-class nuclear submarine capable of launching 100 Tomahawk cruise missiles. We know about this deployment because it had to transit through the Suez Canal. So it was visible as it transited through the Suez Canal. It is now apparently in the Red Sea. So it is moving into position where it would be capable of launching a strike upon Iran. And this is a very potent warship indeed, not one that you deploy, you know, um, casually. And by the way, the United States has only four submarines, apparently, of this type. And we've also seen more pictures now of A-10 war Warthog 
uh, ground attack aircraft being deployed, and they've been deployed with all kinds of um, weapons, including apparently uh, missiles and bombs that you would use to attack bunkers. And again, the suggestion is that they would be deployed against presumably Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hezbollah being seen by the United States as Iran's ally, with, of course, if there's a strike on Iran, the worry the United States would have is that Hezbollah would react. So we can see that all the pieces are being moved into place preparatory for some kind of a conflict between the United States and Iran. Now, the United States continues to insist, the U.S. government continues to insist that that is not its plan. There is, across the Arab world, a marked objection, hostility to this, when the United States has floated this idea with the Arab states, even with its traditional allies. They've all made it clear that they don't want to see this happen. But the, what the United States, what the Biden administration is saying is not consistent with what it is doing. It's moving more assets, military assets of this nature towards Iran against a background of intensifying fighting. And of course, the Iranians are seeing all of this and one must assume that they're taking countermeasures. Yes, I imagine the only thing that the, the United States is waiting on, or at least this is how it looks, is that they're just waiting for all the, the military assets to, to this commentator's name is uh, Alexander Mercurius, and I first discovered him, I think, last Sunday, and he was interviewing John Mearsheimer, and Mearsheimer said that he listens to Alexander's podcast every day, and I thought, wow, if uh, John Mearsheimer can listen to his podcast every day, then I need to, too. I was also interested that uh, he has you know, perspectives that do not dominate the mainstream media, so I, I get something different when I listen to him. And I was also struck by how different his perspective is from Peter Zion. So this is uh, Peter Zion a couple of days ago talking about what did Xi and Biden discuss. Was, by many measures, fairly surprising. Uh, Xi was basically all friendly, talking about how he didn't want competition. He wanted to be a friend of the United States. He didn't want to challenge the United States. I mean, it was basically peace, love, and recycle. Uh, he sounded like a, a teenage camp counselor. Um, three theories that come from this, uh, which are going to shake out real quick into the fact. Uh, number one. Um, he really has lost his mind, <laughs> in which case uh, we're going to see increasing breakdowns in decision-making across the Chinese system as he basically goes bipolar, uh, which could be entertaining, but a little bit dangerous. Uh, the other two scenarios have to do with the cult personnel that has formed. Uh, Xi has destroyed all challengers to the throne. There's no local leaders or regional leaders uh, that have stuff anymore. He's gone through the bureaucracy and academia and business, uh, and he's purged the bureaucracy as well. So part of the problem the Chinese have been having of late is that no one will bring him news. So he really is broadly unaware of what's going on in his own country and across the world. And so when he is thrust into something like the Apex Summit, things get a little weird. Uh, all of his staff apparently focus on the location of the table settings and the types of uh, silverware and uh, what flowers would be in the hotel. And, you know, of course, I didn't want to see any protesters. But it was all on the atmospherics and the design as opposed to the substance. There was very little prep on the Chinese side, as far as we've been able to tell, uh, for what the actual topics of the day happen to be. And, you know, there's a few things going on right now. So that kind of puts us into one of two categories. Number one. Uh, Xi exposed to the world via San Francisco for the first. So what did I think of uh, Joe Biden calling Xi a dictator? Well, it's true, but uh, ill-advised. And the video of uh, Anthony Blinken's face, right, when 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 Biden calls calls Xi. All right, you know, you see you see the the wince uh, here. Uh, you just see the, the wince because it was just ill-advised, right? There are all sorts of things that are true that uh, you don't want to, it's just not, it's just not in your, your best interest to, to say. And, oh, great. Uh, so, yeah, you just see the Secretary of State just wincing when, when Biden has this completely disastrous uh, press conference. So, 
I want to play the design's perspective. Time in years is like, oh my God, what have I done? Uh, my country's in demographic collapse. Our trade situation is dangerous. We are looking at national dissolution over the next decade of stuff, unless something just dramatically changes. And So Peter Zion in 2010 predicted that uh, China would fall apart in the next five years. So obviously that didn't happen. There's a bit something uh, Peter Zion's been saying for 15 years. Every theoretical solution involves the United States in some way. We have to have their market. We have to have the security of their Navy grants, our maritime shipment. We have to have access to their finance markets. U.S., 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 U.S. It has to be the U.S., and if he's come to that realization, then a complete 180 from what we've seen over the last five years makes a lot of sense. The question is whether the cult can now push that down into the bureaucracy and the Chinese system when there are very few competent people left in that system. Uh, we will know the answer to that in a matter. And uh, Alexander Mercurius had the exact opposite uh, reaction to the summit. He, he said it showed U.S. weakness, that the U.S. was desperate for the summit with President Xi because the Biden administration's become uh, overloaded with, you know, various foreign policy crises around the world and didn't want to add to them. So wanted to try to smooth things over with G. And then Biden had a complete you know, disaster of a, of a press conference and, uh, and wasn't, wasn't exactly in alignment with, with the uh, All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about the big summit, the talks that took place between Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden, uh, the, the dictator and, uh, and Joe Biden. <laughs> let's let's talk about it. Um, it. It did not go well, did it? Well, you, you spoke about the talks between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. And I have to say, having seen what happened yesterday, I wonder whether that is even a correct way of describing what happened. Certainly there was a summit meeting. Certainly the two men participated in that summit meeting. But I do actually truly wonder what role the president of the United States, Joe Biden, played in it, because it seems to me. Uh... So Alexander Mercurius has an attitude towards Joe Biden that uh, many of you will share. Essentially, he's saying that uh, Biden's not calling the shots, that Biden is simply not cognitively and psychologically able to conduct foreign policy negotiations with China, that uh, you know Biden is largely out of it. And he is just a, a walking disaster. Um, based on what I saw from the images and pictures of the president in action, both in the moments before the actual meeting and in his press conference, I have very, very serious doubts indeed that he is capable of conducting a summit meeting with someone like Xi Jinping. I'm choosing my words extremely carefully now. But look at the images. You see him going into the meeting. You see Blinken his secretary of state, who, to be very clear, is no Bismarck or Talleyrand, but he's basically managing him. I mean, that, that is how it looked. That is the image that the pictures gave. So we have then an exchange between Biden and Xi Jinping, or so we're told, from the various readouts. But if you read the readouts, it does look to me very much as if whatever it was that Biden said was entirely formulaic. I get the sense that any serious discussion that took place probably was conducted on the American side by Blinken. And I don't think anything of substance came out of the meeting at all. And that was the view that I expressed yesterday in my video, in my channel. And today I see that there's a big article in the national interest, which says essentially the same thing. And it also points out, it goes, it passes the readouts that both the Chinese and the Americans have produced following this meeting. That it's absolutely clear that the Chinese and the Americans are talking at complete cross purposes. The Chinese are focusing on certain commitments that they believe Biden made to them 
at the meeting in Bali last year. You know, this is the G20 meeting in Bali last year. The Americans say absolutely nothing about this. They talk in cliches and formulas because, to be frank, I think that's all that they can come up with. Biden probably confirmed and admitted and agreed that he stands by the commitments, the five no's as the Chinese put it, no recognition of Taiwan, no support for Taiwanese independence, no, um, you know, um, competition, spiral out of control with China. So he probably said that he, you know, he agreed with all of that, that he said in, in Bali last year. But as this person who's written this article in the National Interest points out, the, the American readout says nothing about any of that, whereas the Chinese readout is full of it. And if you also read the Chinese readout, the impression I get is that basically what happened was the Xi Jinping came along, delivered this lecture, wagged his finger at the at Biden and the Americans. He said, you're doing all these bad and foolish things. We've got to put the relationship back on track. Um, and the, China, the Americans just sat there and listened to it all and weren't really in a position to be to interact with him. So I, I don't really think that talks, proper talks between Biden and Xi Jinping is a proper way to define what happened yesterday. I'm trying to figure out why the U.S. was chasing after China for this uh, summit meeting. I mean, I, I understand, I mean, from watching your videos, from my own uh, research into, into seeing the statements and the videos that we've done on the Duran, uh, I think it's safe to say that, that the Biden White House is looking for some sort of, of management of the escalation so that they don't get into another third conflict. I think there is a realization in the Biden White House that, that yes, they, they want to escalate with China. Yes, they want a conflict with China in and around Taiwan. But at this moment in time, they've got Project Ukraine. They've got the war in, uh, in Israel and the Middle East a possible war with, with Iran. For this year, at least, an election. For this year, at least, let's let's just try to manage our own escalation. It's kind of weird to say because the U.S. knows that they're escalating. Maybe they don't know, but they're the ones that are escalating. And, and yet they're also chasing after the Chinese to almost tell the Chinese, help us manage our own escalation so that it doesn't go too far to the point of conflict just yet because we can't handle a third conflict. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? I, 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 uh, I, think, I think that was one of the main purposes, but is there any other reason for, for why the U.S. was chasing after China, why Biden was chasing after China so hard to, to get this meeting? I think there is. But, you know, let's let's actually unpack what you said, because, first of all, it is important to stress. I, I've seen some articles, especially in the British media, pretend otherwise. But it is absolutely clear. There's no doubt about this at all, that it was the Americans who sought this meeting. The Chinese played very hard to get. The Americans sent this troop of people to Beijing over the course of the last few months. I mean, what had happened after the balloon incident was that the Chinese basically cut off all communications with the Americans. They were furious about the kind of comments that Biden was making. So, you know, about Xi Jinping. So they cut off all communications. The Americans got extremely worried about this. We had Janet Yellen going to Beijing. We had Blinken going to Beijing. They moved heaven and earth to get this summit going. Bill Gates went there. Uh, um, other American business people went there. Um, um, as we know, uh, Gavin New. So there's been uh, a lot of conversation about uh, Elon Musk. Is he anti-Semitic? Essentially said that uh, many Jewish communities have been acting in an anti-white way. I, I, obviously, I don't think uh, Elon Musk is anti-Semitic. I think his comments were poorly judged. All right, uh, most Jewish communities, like most uh, Muslim communities, most Anglican communities, most Black communities, uh, are not particularly political. And so, yeah, you've got uh, Jewish activists on the left and on the right, but Jews, like other members of the Coalition of the Fringe, are, are primarily on the uh, left. Right. Here's uh, some Fox News coverage of this story. Yes. Innocent Americans' lives were taken on that day. It's boggling and troubling. Well, could that support for Osama bin Laden, even among the uh, spectacularly ill-informed, and I think a lot of young people just don't know the history of, especially in this war, Israel was attacked, of course. Uh
Look, you can understand why someone did something that you still find horrendous, right? Osama bin Laden profoundly disagreed with the U.S. alignment with Israel and with the U.S. alignment with the Saudi royal family. And that's why he attacked America on 9-11. So you can, you can understand his motivations without you know, giving a thumbs up to his actions. Um, be related to this paragraph where uh, bin Laden says they threw hundreds uh, of thousands of soldiers against us and have formed an alliance with the Israelis to oppress us and occupy our land, our land. <laughs> Here's the concern, Howie. I think when you look at this, at worst case scenario, China is incredibly succeeding in disillusion. Right. The U.S. close alignment with Israel is increasing the chances that the U.S. will experience another 9-11 attack. Right. If, if uh, the United States treated Israel like another normal nation, such as New Zealand, that would be more aligned with America's best interest, and I believe with Israel's best interest. There's just no historical precedent, as John Mishaima notes, for the, for the U.S. relationship with Israel. Israel is not an important strategic uh, partner for the United States. It's a, a charity case that, that uh, greatly increases the chances of the United States incurring the wrath of the Arab Islamic world and suffering more attacks like 9-11. The next generation of America's leaders to not only hate their own country, but also to buy into this occupation Israeli narrative. At best case scenario, you have a case of a lot of misled youths who think they've become... It was, it was amazing that there wasn't a more substantial anti-Israel reaction after 9-11 in the United States. There wasn't more of a reaction that we need to kind of distance ourselves from Middle Eastern alliances because they just unnecessarily provoke attacks on us. I think if there was another 9-11 attack that's directly linked to U.S. support for Israel, that uh, more and more Americans would would question the nature of the American relationship with Israel. Come these internet Indiana Jones sleuths <laughs> that somehow discovered some forbidden knowledge that America was always evil from the beginning and they just need to be educated. Here's the real troubling thing. Pew Research says that 32% of young people get their news from TikTok. And we know among one third of America's next generation, there are leaders in there. Yeah. And so what do you do right. to try and stop this? I'm not sure you can. Yeah, no, not everything on TikTok is bad, but this is just appalling. Now, Elon Musk facing massive criticism for agreeing with a rando's tweet saying that Jewish communities have been pushing hatred against whites. And there's what Musk says. You have said the actual truth. He then tried to backtrack. Not very well. Not all Jewish communities. Then he accused the ADL of anti-white racism. Why would the owner of X go there? I don't know, Howie. And just a few months ago, as you point out, you and I were discussing uh, Musk rub with the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. But mm -hmm. now this one feels a little different because he's embraced this mo this tweet that was uh, viewed as the motivation for the massacre mm -hmm. at the Tree of Life synagogue. And what happened wasn't a boycott like we saw with ADL asking advise, uh, advertisers mm -hmm. to pause. You saw a unilateral pull of, group, uh, of advertisers like 
uh, IBM and Apple. And so this may be more than Musk wanted to bite off in terms of being edgy and whatnot. And I'm not sure that we're going to see it go the right way. By the way, this is going to play out tomorrow morning because Musk says that, quote, he tweeted this last night, quote, the second the courts open tomorrow morning, he's filing a lawsuit against Media Matters, the far left wing advocacy group that constantly goes after uh, media organizations like Fox News. He's going to file a suit against them because Media Matters highlighted this tweet in this situation to advertisers like IBM and Apple. Yeah, but it's still his tweet. And I agree with this time is different. In fact, the White House put out a statement calling Musk's tweet abhorrent and a hideous lie. I think beyond the advertisers, I think this one is not like a one or two day story. Griff, thanks so much. Good to see you, Griff Jenkins. Okay, let's uh, have a look at uh, this Elon Musk uh, tweet. So he's he's saying, uh, you have said the actual truth to a poster who is complaining about uh, Jewish communities being anti-white. Now, 95% of American Jews, according to surveys in the United States, identify as white. So overwhelmingly to uh, Amer- non-Jewish Americans, Jews are white. But there is a tiny but loud number of Ashkenazi Jews who try to proclaim, try to have it you know, both ways. Oh, we're not white. Overwhelmingly, Jews prefer to, if they're going to marry someone who's not Jewish, they prefer to you know, marry someone who's, who's white and not Jewish. Most of their friends, if they're not Jewish, they're going to be white. They prefer to live in white uh, communities. And uh, most, most Jews are not uh, you know, terribly uh, politically active. But among elite circles... All right, the incentives, you know, heavily align with siding with the coalition of the fringes against the white, you know, Christian core of America. That's true for elite Jews. It's true for elite wasps. It's true for elite uh, Roman Catholics and elite uh, Asians and elite uh, Latinos and elite blacks, all right, to side with the coalition of the fringe against the core, which in substance and in practice, you know, does result in the promotion of the interests of the coalition of the fringe against the white Christian core, which is essentially promoting you know, uh, things that are not uh, n- not good for the for the white majority. Okay, uh, Stephen, Stephen James, what's uh, what's going on, man? What uh, what's been preoccupying you the last uh, few weeks? Hey, Luke, is my audio okay? You sound great. Excellent. If the mic uh, goes off, let me know. I've got a spare here. I've been having a few problems. What I've been doing, Luke, all day, I thought I'd bring this to your show here. This is the product of my work here today. Very, very proud of it. Wow, that's that's. you must have put so much effort into that. It's taken all day, actually. Um, and instead of a baby Jesus at the top there, we've got the start of Bethlehem there, Luke. I'm sure all your Jewish viewers will be... No, just thrilled about that. Uh, but apart from that, we've covered it in basically a cheesy Christmas stuff there. But I'm very proud of it. Very proud of it. Excellent. So do you feel like you're reconnecting with your heritage and with your ancestors? Oh, I don't know. It's just a bit of fun, isn't it? You can get into the spirit of Christmas there. Uh, I've got to do it, got to do it. It'd be rude not to, because obviously I've got some streams coming up with Claire Core, and this, Luke, with, for Claire Core, is like holy water, basically. So, 
And uh, have you gotten vaccinated for COVID yet? No, I haven't. Um, how about you? Uh, have you had another booster recently? Uh, yeah, I had like four shots about a month ago. I had, a, had another COVID booster. That's probably like my fourth COVID wow. booster. I had a pneumonia shot. I had the flu shot and I had my second shingles mm. shot. So I had four shots at once. Mm. Wow. Goodness me. All in the same arm or did they do two different arms? I think they did. I, I don't remember. It didn't matter to me. Uh, you know, I felt horrible okay. for a day and a half, but, but now I can see through buildings like I've got bionic powers. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So this is a tricky subject, obviously to talk about on youtube well you can um, now you can it, they've expanded the overton window of what you can say so you can you can pretty much say anything now with regard to the covid vaccine mm -hmm. um well i'm not going to test the water too much but i think we have different views upon it look my main issue with it luke uh, i can understand somebody uh no offense of your advancing years what are you are you 55 are you 57. Um, 50, 57. I can understand your position on it. And uh, I, can, I can understand that in hindsight. Um, my position was simply uh, one or... Well, it's a position that I, I don't take any, any drugs, basically. Um, and so that was the initial one. And then it was that this thing seemed... To, I'm, I'm thinking about my words here carefully. This thing was a brand new product. And I don't think it's wise in general to accept a brand new product that is injected into your system unless you're absolutely sure about it. So at the time, I felt for my age bracket that the risks didn't outweigh the benefits. Um, certainly to overturn a lifetime of not doing any drugs. Like I've never done any of the drugs that would have benefited me physically, such as... You know, testosterone like everybody does um, or things like that for me to take a product that was brand new onto the market that carried many risks but few benefits for my age bracket just didn't didn't it will it wasn't a good risk benefit analysis for me did you did you buy into the narrative that this was going to cause taking the vaccine was going to cause millions of unnecessary deaths i think for a little while I entertained that, yes. And then, it's true, I went through some of that. Um, I was very concerned about it. There's lots of people pushing this as a big conspiracy on the internet. Um, and then I did feel let down by, by some of those content creators, actually. I don't know if you know that. I've admitted this on my channel. No, uh, I, ha I haven't manual. heard that. So t tell me more. Yeah, so many of the dissident right content creators who were absolutely sure that this was like a kill shot. Yeah. Um, they got that absolutely wrong. It wasn't that. Um, but I'm not, again, I'm not convinced uh, that it it's done any good either. So I like have this nuanced position in hindsight where I think that there's a, probably a bad product produced, probably due to rushing it out there, that did cause quite a number of injuries and side effects. I think a lot of that was covered up uh, through uh, fear of this causing less uptake. 
So this is kind of a, a rational understanding, I think, of um, some of the where some of the conspiracies were coming from and being generated about. In this rush to get this thing into people's arms, there were cases uh, going wrong, and the uh, respective authorities were concerned about this generating bad publicity, and they were all in on doing this for for the benefit of their people, and so they were in some respects covering. Uh, the extent of this up um, but it's not turned out to be like um, 5g nanoprobes injected into the blood that then morph into some kind of hydra that take over you and the 5g then instructs you to become some kind of manchurian candidate that hasn't happened yet how have you managed to avoid uh, destroying your life with your flirtation with dissident ideas in general? Um, probably by doing it like this from the neck down, perhaps. That's probably part of it. Uh, that's a, a weird strategy that I entertained right from the beginning. Looking back on it, I think it's incredibly strange, actually, that I do this. It's it's. It's more strange now than when I started. Other than that, let me think about that a second. Look, part of it, I'm not making this up, okay? Part of it is attributed, I think, to you. Some of it, Colin Liddell, actually. Like the, you and Colin are going to think I'm making this up on the spot. But there's you and Colin. Uh, who else? There's a few of you. There's somebody else. I can't think who it is at the moment. There's a few of you who have helped, who have uh, like been surfing alongside the dissident right at the time and been willing to hold it to account and show its flaws where where they exist. And so this has given me a perspective on it. Plus, I came late to the game talking about it i didn't get wrapped up in it in the 2016 stuff i hung back I, I watched what was going on for a while therefore i observed charlottesville and the fallout from that and i thought well, you know i don't want to be one of those guys where that happens um so yeah i don't know if and, that answered your and, question. yeah and i think that you've primarily handled this from a comedic and, and distanced uh, perspective. And I think that's how you haven't primarily been operating as an activist or an advocate. Yeah, well, the truth is I don't have the intellectual capacity to do that, really. I've never pretended to be that kind of guy. I can't come on here and give you super um, exciting geopolitical takes that are going to blow your audience's mind away. That's not what I'm here for. But what I can do is kind of be a cheerleader for people who are, are who have good takes, who are entertaining. <sighs> people who don't take themselves too seriously, I think, always come off the best. And so those are the people I've, I've gravitated more towards over time. That's the type of person I would rather be seen as, as being in a future hindsight from now. Um, yeah, being flippant about things, not taking things too seriously or yourself too seriously is very important.
And uh, how do you decide who you'll allow on your your channel and on your show? Um, well, there's kind of low bar to entry at the moment, I think, because uh, I've just been racing towards getting the, that prestigious 1,000 subs. So <laughs> I think the honest answer is, uh, will it be of... Will it be of benefit to me? And will you destroy my channel if you come on? Um, I feel like I can walk a line, Luke. You know, like you used to do mm -hmm. in the old, yeah. olden days. I could walk the line. I could have some of the old terrifying characters on if I wanted. And gave pushback in context at the time. I've yet to test this theory out with YouTube, really. I feel like we've done a little bit of it. Um, but I was rereading over the terms of service, and if you, you, can, you can entertain serious topics, as long as somebody's not out there directing obvious, uh, like serious hatred towards an entire group of people, uh, then I think you can get away with covering difficult topics if you give uh, pushback and context in the moment. So I'm testing this out at the moment, basically. Maybe I'll find out differently. Yeah, how would how would you describe Duvid to someone who never heard of or, or seen or listened to Duvid? That's an interesting question. I would consider, I would describe Duvid as, uh, oh boy, Duvid is a dissident Jew. Um, Duvid is a Jew who was rejected by the Jews, probably, I think. Um, he's a loner. He's somebody who wanted so bad to be, to, to be uh, seen and become like the top Jew of of his community and feels that uh, like for whatever reason it was taken away from him and I imagine he holds some resentment for that but also he's an incredibly intelligent guy he's incredibly well read I don't doubt that he knows uh, certainly lots of parts of Judaism inside out more than the probably more than the average Jew um, but his opinions on it are, um, they're not necessarily helpful to the Jewish cause, are they? Right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that's and what you wanted me to say, isn't it? That's what you wanted me to say. You wanted me to say that, that I don't mean you, like you wanted me to attack Duvid here live. I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to start drama. What I'm saying is you wanted me to say, look, Duvid is the alt-right Jew. And in many ways... That's kind of true. I think he recognises that in his own way. I liked the fact that David would tell the truth, okay, as I saw it at the time. David would come on no holds barred and not do the Hasbro line of, in whatever case, for whatever reason, defence of, like, the difficult-to-defend talking points, like the Ben Shapiro line. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. He'd just say the truth. Yeah. We're Jews, and we're proud of it. Yes, we 
do this or that thing that you might accuse us of doing. Being careful here. But that's a good thing. And think about it this way. I love the fact that we do this kind of thing because we're Jews and that's how we do it. Yeah, I think that's a good description. Have you experienced the temptations of the e-personality? Uh, somewhat, I suppose, but not as much as other people. Um, what would you say are the uh, temptations of the e-personality, Luke? Okay, so the... One one is to be much more morbid than you would be face to face. Like people will frequently confess things in this sort of forum that they would very rarely say to people face to face. So over disclosure. And ha has this been a temptation mm. for you? So from the start, I was very concerned about doxing myself. Okay. Oh, I have a sporting career that's kind of failing at the moment or about to be put on hiatus. But f initially at the time, I was very concerned about that, that if my channel and my uh, associations, God forbid, if anybody found out that I was associated with the likes of Claire Cor or people like that with a, with a, <laughs> with a public history on Google like that, uh, and then they associated that with my real life, that that could be a problem for me. So in the initial phase, I was very careful to not disclose much about me, but I've disclosed more as time has gone on. Um, I'm tempted to do that, Luke, because the audience want that. You can tell that the audience want to know your personal life really much more than your political takes, don't you think? Yes. So yeah. It's very tempting to do that. It's very tempting because really we're here uh, attempting to gather a crowd around us. It's not nice when you don't have a crowd. It's wonderful when you do have one. Nobody wants to be talking to a room with all empty chairs. Imagine it. I often think in the real world before the internet, what a wonderful thing it would have been if you could fill a room of 25 people all, all sat down on 25 chairs. Imagine that. That would have been very successful. Here on the internet, we have the luxury of doing that and, even, and getting even larger crowds than that at times. And much of that comes through giving people like a an investment in you as a personality. And so that is very tempting. What about you? How have you resisted it? Over the years, Luke, I've noticed that you've been very protective of your personal life. There was a little time where you used to do some streams driving around. But even then, I think you'd even, you'd always turn off the camera as you're getting out of the car or something. But you've, you've always been, you've always played that line very carefully, haven't you? Yeah, because in a sense, I've been doing this since 1997. July 3, mm. 1997 was when I set up my first blog. Um, I was posting mm. on a Usenet group uh, seven months prior. So I, I've experienced a lot of humiliation <laughs> and pain 
and and also a profound realization that most of the the price that I've probably paid for my online persona I'm not even aware of it's it's all the people in my sure, Jewish yeah. community who will not interact with me in any depth because they are so disturbed by you know parts of my online persona so I I kind of have this keen recognition that I'm not even aware of the price that I, I've paid and then it, it just humiliation and pain again and again and again mm. I, I, I have a problem I over disclose I have this problem I over-disclose in real life. So a few weeks ago, I was making a video wondering, why do so many people in my real life treat me with disrespect? And then I I stumbled on a YouTube video about over-disclosure, and I thought, oh, yeah, I am creating this because I am over-disclosing, you know, inappropriately disclosing things that cause people to view and treat me with with disrespect. And it's it's an ongoing problem I still have at age 57, not just online. But in my, in my life, so the the pain and humiliation from that, and experiencing that over and over and over and over and over again, mm-hmm. it has a, a chastening effect. Well, let me give you some pushback that might give you a different perspective on it. Okay, um, other people, normies, Luke, they overdisclose all the time. Like, uh, look at the stuff that everybody posts on Facebook. They are overdisclosing every aspect of their lives, uh, even putting their, their children naked in the bathtub on, on Facebook and stuff like that. Um, I often remark that friends of mine, the moment they go on holiday for two weeks, they post it on the internet. They let everybody know that their house is empty for two much, two weeks. Come and burglarize my home. These people are over-disclosing every single day, every aspect of their lives. And there's the culture on Facebook is just to do that. And you can find out everything about everybody. So, I mean, you don't, you're not doing that, are you? No, no. So, I mean, I've learned from my online experiences, but uh, yeah. just because a lot of people are engaged in self-destructive behavior online doesn't mean that uh, I, I want to minimize my own self-destructive behavior, not just online, but mm-hmm. in, in real life. Like, I have a problem with being overly vulnerable, inappropriately vulnerable, in the wrong context mm-hmm. to, to the wrong people, I'm going to go out and you know get together with people in, in an hour or so, and I'll probably repeat the, the same mistake. Okay, yeah. You have some kind of, uh, you don't have like uh, some kind of Asperger's, do you, Luke? <laughs> Like in social situations, um, you may have some kind of mild Asperger's leak, where because that's all about not being able to read social situations in a correct way, isn't it? Have you ever considered yeah, I, that? I don't think it's Asperger's. I it's probably something else. I, I did get an ADHD diagnosis this uh, about two weeks ago. So I had people close to me who pled with me to get this oh. addressed, and so part no of way. ADHD is verbal impetuosity, you know, inappropriate uh, comments, uh, you know, not not being appropriate to a situation and having, you know, an impossible time paying attention to details that are not exciting. So I'm I'm looking at taking uh, ADHD medication for the first time. 
So be honest, have you sought out have you sought it out in order to take the medication or, or uh, probably not? both. I, I wanted to yeah. get it get it people close to me pled with me essentially to do this and so I just finally did it and then I do mm-hmm. genuinely want to try ADHD medication wow. uh, just to see what effect it has on the quality of my life. Like I want to keep trying things. Uh, one thing I've added to my life is uh, spending more time in sports bars. Like I like going to sports bars now and, you know, I find it a, a good you know, social occasion. My, my own natural tendencies is to isolate way too much. So I have to you know, push myself to, to get out of a rut at times. Have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD or is that something people have said to you? Yes, I was diagnosed as a child. I am an ADHD spurg, Luke. Absolutely, 100%. I'm fu- fully ADHD. Um, however, I'm un- un- unmedicated. Spoke. I was the kid, Luke, at school who could not sit still. Uh, restless leg syndrome, blah, 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 like that all the time. Uh, couldn't concentrate. Disruptive. Uh, just kicking off in class. Uh, I was a kid who, like, at 10 years old, had an adult sat with him in, in the classroom, like, Oh, it's okay, Stephen. It's okay, Stephen. You'll you'll get through. Just pay attention on me. Look at me, Stephen. Look at me, Stephen. Give me your hand, Stephen. Let me hold onto your hand. And I'll, I'll, don't look out the window, Stephen. All this kind of stuff. I was that kid, Luke. And you've never tried the first line medication, meaning Ritalin or Adderall. No, I haven't done it. So, how bad would your life have to get? before you became willing to try this first line medication? Um, so now it's been like my ethos is, is anti-drug. So I've built this into my personality, mainly because due to sports competition, Luke, I could, as an ADHD Spurg, I'm discriminated against by not being able to take any of these medications because they're amphetamine class medications. So you can't take those even if you have a, med- a medical condition and then do competitive sports. So I was prevented from doing it simply because of that. Um, and then I've kind of adopted this ethos of uh, anti-drug. Uh, like I'm teetotal, I don't drink. People my age are just absolutely shocked about that. What? You know, you know, ever drink? No, I never do. Uh, I have done a few times, like over like seven years ago. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would do it. Luke, what an age for you to be considering these meds. Now, what I'd say to you is, from my understanding, there's a lot of success with Adderall. Uh, and I think Ritalin is a similar class. Um, and in many ways, they're just a, probably a better form um, of the in many ways. of the one that uh, you're you've been using on the slide for years. I forgot the Modafinil, name. Modafinil, yeah. Modafinil, yeah. If you get success from Modafinil, from my understanding, you will probably absolutely love Adderall. Maybe even too much. This is this is something you should bear in mind. <clears throat> but my my question for Be you very is, careful. Yeah, my question for you once again is, 
how bad would your life have to get before oh, you became open to first-line medications for ADHD? Um, it's a good question. I had never considered it before. I think instinctually I was refusing to even answer it there as well by just not realizing, answering some other question that I thought you were wanting to hear. Um, probably pretty damn bad. Um, I feel like if I went to the doctors and asked for ADHD medication, I feel like they would think that I'd, I'm like a, a drug user who's just coming to try the system. And so I'd be embarrassed in the first instance. Um, I'm not sure how that would go down here in the United Kingdom um, because we have a national health service. So really we don't have a choice of doctor. I imagine over there in America, you can just like, if you're smart about it, if you pick the right doctor, when you go there, you'll just get anything that you want, will you? Yeah, there's uh, online diagnosis available that you can do, you know, online over the equivalent of Zoom in uh, 30, 40 minutes and you can get a, a prescription. But uh, you... No way, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I know people in Australia that it took them many months and they had to spend like $6,000 of the, their own money uh, and extensive testing. And if you go through your own health insurance in America, it can be similarly laborious if you're an adult. Uh, but you know, I know people mm. close to me who got diagnosed as adults and they were so angry after they got diagnosed because they, they recognized how ADHD had wrecked their lives and how these ongoing yeah. problems that they had was, you know, largely solved by, by getting on ADHD medication. And I'm just thinking you have created a persona and, and a life and a, and a meaning in life based on large part refusal to take medication for a disease that you were diagnosed with. And so you would have to, you would have to give up a large part of yourself to try the medication. Yeah, you know, I hadn't considered all this. Um, yeah, yeah. You'd have to say, look, I was wrong. You know, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, probably. Like, maybe I should do it. Maybe I should do it, but it would have to be after and, and how much, how much losing would you need to endure um, in, in competitions before you made that a smaller priority in your life? You mean, when would I give up competing? Yeah, or reduce the priority that you give it so that other things became more important to you than competing. So for those who aren't aware, I'm kind of reaching the midpoint or getting beyond the midpoint at which you can have a sporting career. I'm, I'm an aging sportsman. Um, and he's not made it, he's not been able to turn it into a career. So therefore, uh, I'm having to make those hard choices right now as it speaks. Actually, it's something that I've been plagued with this last couple of months. Um, you know what I'm afraid of, Luke? It's that there's nothing else special about me. 
okay? There's nothing else special about me. I can't compete in the intellectual spheres. And really, the only place that I can go and shine is out there, like in a sporting competition, literally fighting another dude in a ring in, in my sport or a closely associated sport. I can do various forms of kickboxing too. I can do, there's not really competitive karate, but whatever. I'm worried that if I, as soon as I give that up, which is inevitable anyway, and it's, either way, it's going to be the next, it's going to be the next 10 years, absolutely. Uh, but either way, I'm not really able to compete against, I, I'm going to struggle to compete against younger guys very soon. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of this. It's a midlife crisis, Luke. Yeah, I used to run marathons and then my, my knees got injured. You know, I got the majority of my self-esteem from running marathons at age 11. You know, I was special. There weren't many other 11-year-olds around me who were running marathons. So uh, I get that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I worked at... 11? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I ran five, five wow. marathons at age 12. I ran five marathons at age 12. Okay. And then uh, injured my knees and I had to, had to give that up. Uh, then I got mm. a great deal of my sense of self from I worked at a news, de news department at a Sacramento radio station and I would cover professional sports and, you know, I got a great deal of my, my self-esteem from that. And, and then I decided I wanted to really get serious about my education. So I got admitted to an elite university and I was getting my self-esteem from that. Uh, you've heard the expression, when God closes one door, he opens another. So I I'm thinking if you do give up uh, c competition in, in, in sports as your primary source of self-esteem, you may well hmm. get on the medication that you might need, and then you, your, your life might transform in ways that you simply cannot contemplate right now because you're not medicated, and so you have no idea about how good you could be in other areas of life. Are you suspecting that I'm not just stupid? I just need medication, Luke. Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> I, I think that's possible. Uh, I, I think that... Uh, Holy shit, this could be a revelation. This could be... Um, look, I, look, I agree with you. I don't think you can ever underestimate the extent to which ADHD has upon, upon the brain. But I'm also... Not sure how much of my condition, literally I don't know, I don't know how much of my cognitive difficulties are a result of being ADHD or really a result of like eight years of being punched and kicked in the head. Um, I mean... Look, I can I can absolutely imagine that it's just a result of being punched and kicked in the head a lot, and I don't say that lightly. Um, actually, it's quite concerning. Mm. But and the the thing is, you would know within an hour, all right? Uh, ADHD yeah, you know, top so line right. medication, you know immediately whether this enhances your life. It's not like a three month period that you have to you know take it every day. You know right away. Have you taken it yet? Like you're almost talking not. to me like you're converted. I have not taken it, but 
I know people who have and just completely changed the quality of their life. So, for example, I knew 15 years ago I was talking to a therapist who specialized in sex addiction, and she made the point that every single sex addict she knew had ADHD. And then I, I'm in various 12-step programs, okay. including for sex and love addiction, and, and other people who have trouble with, with spending and earning. And again, it seems from my, from my non-professional perspective, it does seem that ADHD-like symptoms run rampant among the addicts that, that I know. You know, there's a lot of discrimination against us, Luke, too, because uh, most people, <coughs> excuse me, most people, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. Most people do not even believe that ADHD exists. Um, and I think this is some kind of propaganda on the Internet. Um, and this is terrible for us, OK? Um, certainly for somebody like me. You have no, no idea out there, you public out there. Just what a difficulty it is having a brain like mine. Um, in fact, all my rules for life pretty much were, were like designed to cope with this kind of scattered brain that I don't see in other people having. And I've had it for, since childhood. Uh, I can't find anything. I lose things everywhere. Okay. Uh, if, I go and find, if I go looking for something, right, as I'm finding it, I'll put something else down. Like, I'll leave my phone somewhere upstairs. So I'll go upstairs, right, and as I'm looking in the drawer and I find my phone, I put my car keys in that drawer, come down, and then I've lost my car keys too. And then, and this is like a thing that spirals out, out of control. I, I can't work out time. I don't know. I, like, have just really bad perception of time, whether it's passing, uh, how much... I can accomplish in like, say the next half an hour. This has really screwed up my life in a way that's um, almost impossible to explain because there was a period where I could never be on time for anything. I was always 10 minutes late everywhere, always 10 minutes late. Didn't matter what, if I would get up at 5 a.m. and I had an appointment at 9 a.m., I'd, I'd get there at 10 past nine. Okay, doesn't, it's just absolutely crazy. Um, but where, what was, where did I start with this? We're prejudiced against because people don't even believe that it's a real illness. You hear this everywhere. They say, they say it's just a fake illness. You're just a naughty boy. It was the thing that you used to hear about kids who had ADHD. This was, this was the thing that people who deny that it exists used to say about me. He's just, he just needs to behave. He just needs to be, he just needs discipline. No, I was different to other people. So, interestingly, you've given me a big epiphany here. Tonight, Luke, I saw Elliot Blatt says, bro, stop pushing drugs on SJJ. But you, you might be right that when, certainly only after comp competitive sports is over, because I get drug tested. So I could never even contemplate it at the moment. Uh, but after that, maybe, who knows, who knows? Who knows? And how, how long have you been engaged in competitive sports? All my life, all my life since. Uh, so I was a black belt in karate at 12 years old, Luke. I was a child prodigy. 
uh, some people will say, he's talking bullshit, you can't be a black belt at 12 years old, or that was basically just um, <laughs> like a participation belt. No, you can actually. Uh, I did my four-hour four black belt uh, test uh, against knife-wielding adults, and they weren't messing around. Okay, so look, it depends what dojo you go to and that kind of stuff. Anyway, what I was saying, I, I was a, I was a well, um, well-formed twelve-year-old. What's the word? Uh, fully grown up at about about twelve or thirteen, anyway. Um, and then I was like a child, child prodigy in sports, who should have gone far. Um, but then I kind of failed that as an adult. I'm pausing, Luke, because I was thinking about, should I say on here again, I feel like I was robbed by COVID-19 of the, of the, uh, like the, the opportunity, that, the peak moment, right, when I could have been scouted, basically. I could have been, at the time when I could have been scouted for, say, like the UFC or, so, or a competitor promotion that would actually pay money. Um, COVID-19 hit, everything shut down and two years went by and we'll never know what, what could have been basically. So I'm very resentful for that actually. But this, this is actually something which I was going to bring up to you a little while ago. I can't now remember what you were saying about covid but it was something about how basically your premise is that everybody did everything about about as good as they could with a difficult situation, isn't it? Yeah, that the, the, the elites, that our elites did better than average with regard to COVID. Yeah. So not as good as they could, but they did better than could be expected. They did better than average. So my perspective is pretty different but it's a very personal perspective and it's based on the fact that I had the two, like two and a half really of the absolutely key critical formative years of my life uh, taken away from me basically. The, and I don't think that this is really understood out there in the, in the post COVID narrative. People don't realize what an absolute disaster it was for those of us who at that moment, those two years were the key moments of their lives. Okay, and they, they, they were the years that would have been life-changing for them, potentially. I know that I could be engaged here in a sense of claiming that it wasn't my fault, it was the world's fault. So I'm holding my hands up to that. <sighs> Obviously, everything is my fault at the end of the day. I, I'm, I'm responsible for my own destiny. But I have this resentment, Luke, that there yes. hasn't been uh, like reparations paid <laughs> to us who had those formative years of their lives ripped away from them. Um, and everything's just gone back together and everybody's forgotten about that. And that really is the big tragedy of COVID. And nobody's thinking about those kids who had th those key critical moments uh, of their lives just robbed from them and like 
And like, for instance, I've never heard anybody tell a story like mine on the internet about how like their potential like sporting career was totally just potentially again. It could be all my fault, but taken away from them by everything being shut down when like I could have been scouted for one of the big competitions during that time. That would have been the time when it would have been happening. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, think your average college so, so, student, they lost their college experience because yes. they were shut down during COVID. So tens of millions of people suffered losses just as you're describing. Yes, exactly. And it was the first time, really, that I'm aware of, unless I'm just repeating talking points off the internet, but it sounds right to me, first time that, uh, like the boomer generation or the, uh, the grandparent generation, sacrificed <laughs> the lives, metaphorically, if you take my metaphor, what happened to me, sacrificed the lives of their children for the, for, so that they could have a few extra years. Yeah, yeah, I get, you, so, get your point. And I, I think millions of people, if they had the opportunity to hear you, would be able to identify and, and share similarly heartbreaking stories of, mm -hmm. you know, the college experience. Like I had my college experience robbed from me because I got quite ill and the illness ended up lasting for 30 years before I started taking my beef organ capsules. But, you know, I'd strongly <laughs> advise anyone who's vegetarian not to be vegetarian. I feel like the vegetarian diet that I was raised with robbed me of the chance for a normal life. Because not until two years ago when I started taking before organ capsules did I manage to get a normal sense of health. So there are many things that can absolutely cripple a life. And, I mean, you'd have to have a heart of stone not mm -hmm. to have some empathy for what you're just describing. So I, I'm just curious, like, what are the, the, have been the bases for your self-esteem? So I would estimate that uh, I probably get half of my self-esteem from my online activities and probably 25% from my volunteering activities. And, and, and for you, I would assume that you probably get about 25% of your self-esteem from your online activities and more than 50% from your sporting activities over the course of your life. What are the other primary bases for your self-esteem? You know, I would say, sorry, I hate that. I've got the you know virus, not you know. Let me just answer the question. Look, five for the last five years, it's probably been all sports, actually. Ah, I'd invested so much into it. And if you could see my life from the outside, look, through sports, I have been able to excel and I can still excel. And again, I come back to, I'm afraid that I don't have any other way to be able to do that or generate self-esteem without that. Um, so really, Luke, I think the answer is, it's like 90% invested into this thing yeah, that I'm rapidly losing control it. of. Yeah, yeah. And I had a girlfriend, I... A beautiful girlfriend asked her, what percentage of your self-esteem comes from your looks? And she said, 100%. So yeah, I, think absolutely. <laughs> I think you invested so much in sports because you were not thriving and getting self-esteem from any other part of your life. 
Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> it's not unusual for a sportsman, though, Luke, that to have to commit absolutely 100% to sports. Um, it means that you'll... Certainly in my case, I lost touch with much of my friend group. Uh, many of those, by the way, have just uh, become products of like drink and drugs. So I'm not too unhappy about that. I look at, I look at some of my friends and they don't, they, I see them like once occasionally around town here. Uh, so I'm still, I'm where I grew up. And they don't even realise that the last 10 years have passed. I don't even think they're having the angst. They'll prob there'll probably be another 10 years before they have like the angst that I'm having. And they look back on their lives and they're like, whoa, whoa, I've rolled up and smoked the last 20 years of my life. So maybe I'm not in such a harsh, harsher position as, as some other people could be. But sports requires you to focus, to put your head down, to take yourself out of uh, the the, uh, the usual kinds of things that you do as a kid or growing up, um, you know, not drinking, not getting into that kind of culture, um, just keeping your head down, focusing, going to the gym, um, training. You're saying it's very it isolationist. You from, yeah, you're saying it saved you from a lot of w worse outcomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could be a pothead instead yeah. of like addicted to sports. And or an I think extreme the Muslim. former is uh... could be a Muslim <laughs> terrorist. <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. Absolutely but, not here in the United Kingdom. But you must understand people who become extremists because extremism is how you have dealt with your own illness. Um you know, I don't understand extremists, actually, in a way. Not online extremists. Um, well, people have to get their self-esteem from somewhere. So someone, sure, say they've got okay. nothing going on in their life, but they go online and they say extreme things and suddenly they develop a following. And so that fills them up, whereas nothing else has filled them up. I can okay, understand yeah, why people that. would keep pumping out things that uh, get them you know, praise and strokes. Sure. Are you thinking about anybody in particular? Well, I, I mean, pretty much anyone on the, almost, uh, most people on the dissident right who achieve some notoriety, mm. uh, they're not coming from a background in scientific innovation, great business success, or any mm. other, you know, great form of success. This is suddenly the niche where for the first time they're able to feel like they're a success. But, but I see it in religion too. I remember this one mm. woman who, who became an Orthodox Jew and someone close to her said, well, it's the one thing she's been able to do that she's a success at. So I think everybody wants to do something that they're successful at. So for some people, it's working out, competing. Uh, other people, yeah. it's online persona. Other people, it's religion. But everybody wants to feel successful because as you were talking there, we, we can't help but compare ourselves to others. And so sure, yeah. whenever you feel bad, mm. you'll compare yourself to others and go, well, at least I'm not as big a you know, pothead as <laughs> this person. And at least I didn't waste the last 10 years watching telly like this person. And so we mm. all do that. So I comfort myself with my low numbers online by saying, well, at least I'm, I'm saying the tough things that are not popular to say. 
But if I were getting, you know, 100 times the viewership, then I would get my self-esteem from the viewership. Because I can't get my self-esteem from viewership, then I get my self-esteem from telling myself, well, I'm saying the tough, unpopular things. Yeah. Ah, Luke, you know, um, there is a lot of that in the distant right. Like the internet has provided a brand new phenomenon whereby ordinary rather un, um, unspecial people are able to make themselves stand out on the internet. You know, I, I had this kind of epiphany the other, the other week as well about my generation, particularly for my generation, right? And definitely it's going to be even worse for like generation alpha coming up. Okay. They're, Everybody is now online on the internet. Um, and this is, everybody's putting their opinions out there. And there is this, um, there is this, so, so there's this huge ocean of voices out there. Everybody's projecting out into uh, the, like the public space. And so there's this sea of noise and it's much, much more difficult, actually, in that sea of noise to get noticed. And so in order to get noticed, you really have to either adopt an extreme position or ad adopt, like, I know, say, like, uh, say, become a tranny or something, uh, trans yes. person or something yeah. like that. or. Yeah. It, and and this is really like a unique modern condition and it's entirely due to the internet and there is this pressure on young people uh, and the other the flip side of that coin is that in those who cannot do that those who are just existing in the sea of noise feel a deep sense of nihilism and this is the condition really of the zoomer generation who uh, feel that like this deep sense of checked outedness you know there's that meme on the internet that young men are checking out of society there's the rise of needs not in education and employment and this is a very modern phenomenon and it all arises from there being that ocean of competing opinions everybody competing for attention and only select few are able to rise up and say here i am and get noticed yeah have you experienced the lure of the guru have you discovered say any online personalities who make you feel happier and therefore you feel yourself developing like an unhealthy virtual relationship with them um Let's think about that. Mm, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I think I decided to start talking on the internet, to turn on my camera and give my own takes rather than to like obsessively, compulsively just be interested in somebody else on the internet. Um, I can answer a question that you didn't ask. And that is who um, do I still really like on the distant right? And, you know, Mark, 
I've got to be honest, right, that more and more uh, I'm coming around to just becoming a Richard Spencer fanboy all over again, Luke. Yeah. Well, he's, he's a very, very smart guy. Uh, but do you, you, you understand the phenomenon of people who feel like there's something missing in their life and then they discover an online personality such as a Jordan Peterson who suddenly makes them feel whole or happy for the first time and so they develop an unhealthy attachment to this virtual relationship. Sure, absolutely. Uh, especially dudes are looking for a father figure. John Peterson fills that role. Um, you know, this is a phenomenon in dissident right cults, <laughs> uh, cultish circles too. Um, People listen to somebody and then they defend them to the hilt, even when they're making mistakes. Um, on another show, I've spoken about, like, um, over here in England, we don't need to get personal, but there's a guy called Academic Agent who is the de facto yes. leader of the dissident right. And he actually, I think, I, like, I'm, I've given the criticism before, and I think it's well due that... He himself says, he compels himself to Alex Ferguson, one of the most popular football managers of Manchester United. So he's courted this kind of thing. And I don't think people realise that they're wrapped up in a cult of personality. They really think that they're receiving like eternal wisdom from a guru. But really, it's a cult of personality and somebody is selling them a product, and literally a product in the case of these personalities who are pumping out books, who are pumping out courses online, really that are pretty much worthless, probably, at the end of the day. Don't sue me, academic agents, but your courses are probably not worth £350. It's just and, a personal opinion. Yeah. And, and then there, there are sometimes there's, there's say, a woman who's feels somewhat broken and she might become obsessed with some online streamer and mm -hmm. shack up with him, have his babies, and then she is ah. never seen again. That was a great way to come around to asking <coughs> the Mama Jeff question, Luke. That was perfect. Yes, indeed. You know, I'm a big fan of JF Gary Epi Luke. Actually, I'm somebody who understands him. And this is through watching him over the years, simply due to the fact that his show comes on when it's my bedtime. So he's the guy, <laughs> this is going to sound like a, an insult, actually. <laughs> he's the guy I can put on and go to sleep to. It's not an insult, JF, okay? Dude, I'm not saying that you send me to sleep. It just happens to be the case. Therefore, I watch your show on a nightly basis. I gain the respect for JF as being really a product of the internet, a misunderstood internet artist who also is a role play, a character playing a role. Some of it is performance art. He plays into the autistic character. He plays into like the man versus woman role on the internet that men are being uh, <laughs> done hard by the gynocentric world order. Let's call it that. 
Um, and he plays this character. And he truly is like a, a very intelligent character. And he did actually start blood sports and internet debate. And he has this fascinating theory, which is all about reproducing being the source. It's almost a religious belief that reproducing, as he calls it, insemination uh, is the source, is, is the true and only way to achieve everlasting life. That by sending your genes into the future is really the only way that you can achieve immortality and that perhaps all the religions were kind of just geared towards getting you to do that one thing and if you look at if you look at all animal life that if there is a meaning to life the only one that it is is that you should reproduce yourself and send your genes into the future and that the only way of achieving an afterlife is by doing that and so i'm in some ways, this has given me an existential angst by watching JF thinking about this and realizing that I haven't done that. I'm very concerned about that, very mindful of that. And, I mean, people have said some very unkind things about JF the, the last uh, month, mm. but he done told the bitch several times. Oh, twice at least, Luke. At least twice. twice. He done told her. Yeah. And he so did. you can understand why... He, might have gotten a little upset. I mean, he done told the bitch, don't, you know, don't bring, you know, don't do that terror stuff in, on my camera when I'm live streaming. And he done told yes. her, no one's ever seen her since, but you can understand that he was upset. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> he done told Look, her, bro. He, he did. He did. She does it. Like, my opinion of Mam and JF is that she's schizotypical. You can see this from the No White Guilt episode. Okay. Yeah, absolutely schizotypical. That's what that was. Uh, no White Guilt, you tried to rape me, okay? You did. And JF's going, no, it did not happen like that. Mama JF, she is having a confusion here. And she's like, you tried to, you tried to commit a terrorism at me, no, I'd guilt. That's a schizotypical episode happening in real time. So we know that that's her character. We also know from all the information that's like come out over the years that she had this obsession with Jeff and, and Richard Spencer at the time. She's graffitiing their names on, on the walls um, out there in Canada, riding around on a bicycle naked. She did, as you described, become besotted with JF as a guru on the internet. How bizarre. How bizarre. JF of all people. What a weird one to, one to... That just shows you, actually, where JF was at the key moment of the internet as it was happening. That, that he was able to have that power of at least one woman on the internet. And he describes Mama JF as having James Bond-like uh, powers, able to survive in impossible circumstances, able to cross mm. borders without using a mm -hmm. passport. Uh, do you, does that strike you as an accurate description of Mama JF? So look, I'm sure this is exaggerated, but there are 
examples of women that come from, you know, hobo type girls, uh, hippie type girls. There is this class of girl. I think we can say definitely looking at the evidence that Mama Jeff comes from that class of girl. The girl, and, and it's completely different, right? These types of girls survive on other men's sofas. So it's not actually in other men's beds. Let's be real about it. But so it's completely different from like a hippie dude who uh, finds finds his way in the world and is like that kind of character. These these types of girls are surviving by being taken care of by other men. There's probably sluts. Okay, don't we don't really want to go there, but that's probably what it is. They're being kept by other men. They're being driven around, hitchhiking, staying on other men's sofas more often in other men's beds. So I don't doubt that's what Mama JF is like. That's the type of character she was. Now, I'm, I suspect, Luke, that there was some kind of deal made by JF Garriopi and her to produce some children. And that this is what we're looking at now in the, in the aftermath of it. Rather, so... I think she was probably one of these types of girls. She genuinely didn't have a motherly instinct, but she was so besotted with Jeff and they struck like they came to a deal <laughs> of some kind, maybe um, financially incentivized her much more than just like with a, a place to stay for a few years. Um, and he can't speak about that, but he's given her lots of money now. And she's gone off. There could be some arrangement that we're not uh, apprised of that now, led to the production likely, of two children. You think it's more likely than not that she's still alive? I I actually do. That's the that's the conclusion I've come to. I think, and I th I'm starting to think there could be some more unspoken arrangement that could get JF in trouble as to the production of those two children. That was like the basis of their relationship in the first place. I'm not saying that like she was just like a two-year two-year hooker to produce children, but something along those lines might be the actual outcome. So you don't think that uh, JF is responsible for her current condition? I think there's no evidence for that. Um, no. You know those guys that you had on uh, that you were playing on your show. I pretty mm -hmm. much think they got their takes from my videos. Actually, I, I did some videos <laughs> about this straight off the bat, and they got thousands of views. Actually, or a couple of thousand views. Um, but that's my take. JF is a weird guy, and the the secret that he's hiding, okay, that he never wanted to be revealed to the world, is that he had two kids. He was hiding that for two years from the internet and this thing this ha happening with mama jeff her ending up getting reported missing has has caused that situation to be blown up and exposed to the world and he still doesn't want to talk about the fact what everybody knows that there's two children involved and that's the responsibility of him being super cagey about it and I think, therefore, there's something more to the fact that Mama GF was okay 
with leaving those children behind because she'd done it before, Luke. She'd done it before. It's not the first time that she'd left. And a mother who can just go leave her children behind is a very strange, strange type of woman indeed. There's something else going on there, if indeed she is alive. Yeah, I, I don't find JF's uh, story about her, you know, wanting to leave and then he keeps changing his story that, you know, he tries to initially promote that she left with all this survivalist gear and then uh, he goes, oh, okay, no, she, she didn't. She just left with a very small knapsack. I, I don't find his story at all credible. So that's, that's you where think, I come from, so, the more I think about it. I know you're, you're not going to want to say, look, I, Luke Ford, believe Jeff Gariepi is the murderer of his wife. But Correct. I, I wouldn't your... say that, but I don't believe his story. So th there's, okay. there's a vast yeah. middle, middle, middle space mm. between those two conclusions. I don't believe his story about her disappearance, but I would not <clears throat> make any allegations uh, beyond that. So, so in that middle space, I'll insert my theory for everybody to think of that there's something, there was something more to the relationship about producing two children that now JF is left with than meets the eye and that that may be the secret to unlock this puzzle uh, and the thing that he doesn't, that he's so cagey about it being exposed. That's my theory anyway. Do you think it's fair to call JF a nihilist? Yes, because he describes himself as one, uh, because he doesn't believe there's um, any, um, what's the word, Luke? Uh, any transcendent moral uh, code. So, yeah, he, he is yes. a nihilist, and he does think that he can get away with almost anything. That's his Ooh, online I persona. I, I, I like how you brought that back around to uh, your inferred position upon his uh, his current situation. Um, you know, I don't doubt that Jeff could get away with uh, a big crime too yeah, I think he's, he's smart, smart enough to be able to do that and he doesn't yeah. he, he, he admits he, he doesn't care about other people you know almost at all like I think he's, he's fairly out and open about that he is not encumbered by caring about other people yeah um he, he did say he loved Mama Jeff. He used to say that. Yeah, so, he, he did say that. But uh, the evidence of his overall self-description is not as someone who feels encumbered by his affection for other people and his concern for their well-being. No, definitely not. He um, He's a misanthrope, absolutely, isn't he? Okay, I'm going to wrap up for today. Any any final Thank words? Thank you, Luke. No, okay. that's it. I, I did actually just want to say that Colin Dell sent me on here to say that the Duran are Kremlin chills and you mustn't listen to them, Luke. <laughs> I, I know like, in your context, you can listen to um, a vast array of sources and then find a middle ground. Uh, but 
actually the Duran are Russia first. That's the important thing to know about the Duran. Uh, they do some good analysis, but what you'll find about the Duran, if you look closely, right, look at all the vi all their videos, right, what they do is they always report the positive advancements of Russia um, and only, like, the negative aspects of the US, uh, or in particular, like, the case in the conflict in Ukraine. So they asked absolutely Russian first. Now, that doesn't mean that their analysis is necessarily wrong, but it's important to note that, that they do lie by omission in this way. Okay, and that would be my final word. Okay, thanks, uh, Stephen. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day.